right. Good morning, church. Perhaps I should say good morning, maybe half of us, because I know a lot of people are gone and traveling. I know Matt is on vacation. He'll be back next week, so just get to suffer through me for this morning, and don't worry, we'll get, we'll get back to normal. But uh, also, I was a little disappointed that Coda wasn't here this morning, because I'm going to use him to, to introduce this morning, but I hear he's on Zoom. So in case, Coda, you're watching, hello, I'm about to use you as an example. Uh, Coda's 16. So he's got his permanent right now, according to his sisters, and uh, someday, who knows when, he'll actually have his license and be able to drive. And when that happens, perhaps, assuming all goes well, he will be able to drive himself to school. Now, when he drives himself to school, there's two things that are important. One, his destination. Is he actually going to drive to school? I'm sure his parents and his family care very much, care very much he goes to school, that he's not headed off to the liquor store or somewhere on, you know, on a Monday morning. But that, so that's important. But also for the rest of us, I think we all care very much how he chooses to drive. Is he going to be a good driver? Please, hopefully, you know, you, you'll practice well now, you'll be alert and a, a good citizen on the road. But we, we, so we know that it's not just where you're going, but how you go about getting there is of incredible importance. It's of incredible importance. And then sometimes it's just as important as where we're going. We're all going somewhere in life. We're all oriented in a particular direction. And I think we would all say, since we're here this morning, whether you're a Christian or not, the very fact that you are here says that you are seeking something, that you are seeking perhaps God, that you're wanting to learn more, you're wanting to grow, or if you're not a Christian, maybe you're asking questions. But everybody here, whether you're online or physically with us, we're all seeking something. We're all having a destination that we're searching for. But how we get there is of incredible importance. We've been in this series in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles called What Happened, Tell Me. We've been looking at David's reign as king. And one of the themes in 1 Chronicles in particular is this idea of seeking the Lord. Seeking the Lord. One of the commentaries that I've been reading defined it this way. Orienting one's life toward him in active faith and obedience. So orienting one's life in act, toward him in active faith and in obedience. So that's our title for today, is Seeking the Lord. We're going to see that at times, we seek the Lord, we orient our lives toward Him with great gusto. But sometimes we miss the how. How ought we orient our lives towards Him? We fail to seek Him on His terms. We want to seek Him on our terms, because quite honestly, a lot of times that's easier. We'll say, yeah, I'm seeking the Lord, but I'm kind of going to do it my way, as opposed to what he says. The primary text for today is 1 Chronicles chapters 13 to 16. That parallels 2 Samuel 6, contains a lot of the same narrative. But the authors 
uh, the, the author of, of Samuel and the author of Chronicles, they draw out some very different emphases in the text. So they don't really go in the same direction. In these chapters, David takes the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. So not Noah's Ark, not the boat, but the Ark of the Covenant. You know, the one that we see in Raiders of the Lost Ark. That, that Ark. Although that, that story's not true, just in case you're, you're wondering. It's a movie. But that idea, the Ark of the Covenant. We'll talk more about that in a second. David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And this displays David's heart for the Lord. And both authors use this example to show why God then chooses to enter into a covenant with David in the next chapter. And Matt's going to cover that next week. But each author, even though they're looking at uh, this example and showing that this results in the covenant uh, that God makes with David they still kind of draw out different aspects and are emphasizing different things. You see, Samuel looks at David in particular and the celebratory worship that he has, but the author of 1 Chronicles instead looks at the involvement of the Levites and then the corporate nature of the whole affair. And there's a reason for that, and it's because of the audience of 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles is written to people living, the Israelites living after the exile. They've returned from exile in Babylon, and they're back in their land, but they're still oppressed. They're not living in freedom. They're longing and looking for an awaited Messiah. Time, The chronicler is telling them, look, no, you need to still seek the Lord. Seek the Lord together. And so there's a reason why the Levites and the corporate nature get teased out. And we'll see that later on as we go. But that's going to be our text for today. You see, the First Chronicles text often gets neglected because it's a little more boring. There's lists of names. It's not as fun. We sometimes know the Second Samuel text because it's when David dances around and does all this stuff. The chronicler completely ignores that. Doesn't care about it. And so you know what? That drew my attention. And intrigued me a great deal. So sadly, I couldn't do both because it was just too much to cover because they have two different emphases. So we're going to spend our time in First Chronicles today. And I hope it'll be edifying to you. There are three things that are true of seeking the Lord that I want us to walk away with by the time we're done that I hope you will see in the text. The first thing is this, is that seeking the Lord needs to happen on His terms. It needs to happen on His terms. Secondly, true seeking of the Lord results in right action. True seeking of the Lord results in right action. And thirdly, true seeking is worth it because of who God is. True seeking is worth it because of who God is. So that's where we're going. Those are the three things that I hope you'll pick up on. But let me pray and we will dive in. Father, we praise you for the gift of your word. Father, I pray this morning that as we read it, that you will open my mouth to share what is on your heart. Father, give me wisdom and clarity as I speak and give us ears to hear and soft hearts that long to listen. May what we do here today, corporately together, worshiping you, be pleasing in your sight. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's dive in. First Chronicles chapter 13. David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and Levites in the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. Then, let us bring again the ark of our God to us. For we did not seek it in the days of Saul. 
And all the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of the people. Okay, so we're going to stop there. Here we are introduced to what's about to happen. David and all of Israel, they resolve to bring the ark into Jerusalem. They say, we want this ark where we are. We want to seek it. Now, the ark is the box. It's about, you know, yay big, probably a few feet long, a few feet high, a few feet deep. Surprisingly, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, they get the design of it pretty, pretty close. So if you want to go get a good idea of what it looked like, you can watch that movie. They're not too far off. But it was that idea of this box. And in that box, you had the Ten Commandments. You had some of the manna that God gave his people. You have Aaron's staff that budded. And the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of God's agreement, his covenant with his people. That he would be their God. They would be his people. And so it was a picture of, the, of this agreement And not only that, but it also symbolized God's presence. Because the Ark of the Covenant would sit in the tabernacle, and God's glory, God's presence would come and dwell above the Ark of the Covenant. And Moses would go into the tabernacle and speak with God face to face as as he would sit near the Ark. And the Ark is designed to really be a footstool. You imagine God's kind of invisible, glorious throne, and the ark is kind of his footstool here on earth, symbolizing his reign, symbolizing his kingship. So the ark was incredibly important, but they've been neglecting it, which means they've been neglecting the Lord. They've been neglecting being with him. And that was part of Saul's reign. And we see you know, Saul gets rejected. So it's no surprise that here we find they haven't been inquiring of the Lord. They haven't been going to the ark That hasn't been a part of their worship. But David and all of Israel, they say, no, we need to fix this. This needs to come back and be with us. We want to be in the presence of God. Because that was where God was. Yes, God is everywhere, but this was a special picture of God's presence. We'll see later on at the very end of this morning that we are now where God's presence dwells in a special way as his church. And so, here David says, let's bring the ark to where we are. And they all agree that it's right in the eyes of the people. And again, I want to re-emphasize this idea of seeking. It's not just I'm searching for something, but it's an orientation. Orienting one's life toward God in active faith and obedience. And for the people of this day, it wasn't this nebulous, oh, well, maybe we'll just love God, but it was particular. Because they needed to be diligent in fulfilling the commands of the Mosaic Law, opposing idolatry, and especially supporting and participating in the authorized worship at God's dwelling place, which later on became the temple. So they weren't seeking, and now they want to seek. So let's keep going. So that kind of establishes what's going to happen. Verse 5. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Lebohamath to bring the ark of God from Kiryat Yearim. And David and all Israel went up to Be'alah, that is, to Kiryat Yearim, that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of Yahweh, the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God cart from the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah and Ahio were driving the cart. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with song and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. 
So here we have this picture of them bringing the ark away from where it was. And they're taking it towards Jerusalem. And they're celebrating with all their might. There's great joy. And we would look at this picture, and on a surface reading, it's kind of like, okay, you know, things are going well. Great, you know, they're, they're, they're bringing it where they ought. They're really excited. But there's a significant and serious problem. It's on a cart. And we read that, and we're like, oh, what's, what's the big deal? That seems like a good way to carry something. You know, you stick it on a cart. You can, it's like putting it in the back of a truck. Let's, let's bring it. We don't want to drop it. But this actually gives us a flashback to something that happened at the beginning of 1 Samuel. You see, Israel would often bring the ark into battle. And in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 4, they lose the battle and they're like, hey, let's, let's go get the ark. Because maybe God will give us victory. So they start using God. They think of him in the ark as, a, as, a, as kind of like a talisman. They're looking to do something magical. And they're fighting against the Philistines. So they, they bring this ark to, uh, to, into the battle. And... Sure enough, they lose. God's not terribly happy with them kind of abusing the gift of the ark. They lose the ark, it captured, it goes, it goes into the, the territory of the Philistines. But then what happens is God afflicts the Philistines with these plagues. Uh, their idols kind of fall down in front of the ark. They develop these tumors. It's a, it's a wild story. And it's, they, they start playing hot potato with the ark because they're like, oh, this is dangerous. I don't want it. And they start passing it around the cities. And after seven months, they get so tired of it, they're like, let's just put it on a cart and send it back to Israel. Now, there's a lot more nuance to that story and things that we could get into. But uh, for, this, for this purpose, we want to see that they put it on a cart. The pagan people who don't have a special relationship with God who are not his covenant people, who don't know how to interact with him, who were afflicted by him. What do they do? They stick it on a cart and they say, get it out of here. And here we have David and God's people putting it on a cart. Putting it on a cart. This is in direct violation of how they ought to have carried it. In Exodus chapter 25, verses 12 to 15, Moses says this, You shall cast four rings of gold for it, that's the ark, and put them on its four feet. Two rings on one side of it, and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. So they were... They're very clear instructions on how the ark should have been carried. And there's a reason for that. We'll look at it in a minute. But they were to carry it with these poles so that no one touches the ark. Well, let's head back into 1 Chronicles and kind of see what happens as they go along. Verse 9. And when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark. For the oxen stumbled. Wants to save the ark, keep it from falling off. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark. And he died there before God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day. And he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. 
And the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. This is one of the hardest stories in Scripture. It's confusing. It's odd that God would respond this way to somebody reaching out, touching the ark, in an attempt to keep it stable. And we can look at this and we can struggle with the exact same thing that David struggled with in this story. David gets angry at the Lord. We see this comparison that the Lord, that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and then a sentence later, David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And we can ask, why wouldn't the Lord show mercy? Why is there this anger that gets kindled? We would tend to side with David. We would say, I understand why David is upset. Think about David's relationship with the Lord up to this point. David has seen the mercy and compassion of God. He knows that he is gracious. And here David gets a picture of, oh my goodness, something here is going on. And David becomes fearful. How could I take this into my house? Oh my goodness, if God is like this, why would I want this thing anywhere near me? You see, our sin separates us from God. There is a reason why Uzzah was struck dead on the spot when he touched the ark. We are broken, fallen, and wicked creatures who have rebelled against a glorious and mighty and good king. And he cannot tolerate sin in his presence. And so when Uzzah reaches out and touches the ark, In a way, it is Uzzah entering into the presence of God. And he dies because of it. This is a true spiritual reality that we need to wrestle with and see. God's instructions for them to carry the ark on those poles is a picture of his holiness. It's also a picture of his mercy. Because then people aren't just kind of stumbling into his presence by accident and being struck dead. In the same way that if people went into the holy of holies of the tabernacle or of the temple, they would also die. Unless, all the, the, unless it was the high priest and the right rituals had been done. But here we have a picture of God's holiness. A, a, an understanding of who he is. And the way that the Levites were supposed to carry the ark demonstrates to God's people who he is. Who he is. And when they don't, when David fails, what it gives us and the entire watching world is a false view of who God is. That's why this is serious. When it's on the cart, it's saying God isn't as glorious and magnificent and holy as he is. When it's being carried properly, it does give us a right image. We're going to revisit that again later. But all of this, up to this point, is to say this. True seeking of God must happen on his terms. That's the first idea. True seeking of God must happen on his terms. There's no amount of celebration that can overcome this. They were very excited about bringing the ark of God into Jerusalem. It's not the thought that counts. True obedience, true seeking of him requires doing it on his terms. 
a few years ago, well, more than a few years ago at this point, maybe five or six years ago, I started woodworking. It became a, a hobby of mine. I inherited a table saw from my uh, father-in-law when he passed away, uh, a little job site saw. I, I had no idea how to use that thing. By God's grace, I still have all of I, I, I literally did not know what this tool was supposed to do and how to use it. I looked up one YouTube video. I read no instruction manuals, and I started using it. Wanted to make a few knickknacks here and there. And I, I didn't understand how the table saw ought to have been used. I didn't have a proper respect for that tool. Now, about five or six years in, my opinion of that device has changed quite a bit. I understand what it is, how to use it. My respect level for it has gone way up. And there's a right way and a wrong way. I've watched hundreds upon hundreds of hours of videos about safety and what to do right, how to do things in a way that, that understands and isn't going to get yourself you know, killed or at least lose your fingers. And it's, all of that is because I have begun to respect the saw. And in the same way, God, I mean, he's far more than a tool. But there is a respect level that is owed to him. And we have to understand what he is like in order to be around him in the proper and right way. And that is the picture that God was trying to create with the Levites carrying the ark. And that's what we see here with Uzzah sticking out his hand. As if, you know, you put your hand in a table saw blade, it's not going to go well for you. God is deserves a proper amount of respect. And in our eagerness to worship, we tend to forget, oh, this is the type of respect that God wants. We can think that, oh, if I just have the right heart, then all is fine. When God wants to say to us, having the right heart leads to a good obedience that we'll see here in a second. In the church in particular, we can become very pragmatic We can say, what works? What gets people in the door? What is a way that I can kind of connect with people? And and for me, uh, as somebody who works on campus with a campus ministry, I butt up against this all the time. Because we're in the business of trying to reach people with the gospel, we tend to often think of, well, how can I just get in front of people? As opposed to, how do I become faithful to God? It's not about just the people there, or getting getting in front of them but it's instead how do I how do I help connect them to the Lord how do I do his will not what is convenient and seems to work we start mixing our thoughts with what we think works and what's nice with what God may or may not have said this comes from the insidious nature of sin it deceives us and makes us think things that are okay that really aren't we can even, it can even get into the sense of over-spiritualizing things. Instead of just practicing wisdom and living according to ways that God has, uh, has, has ordered the world, we say, well, if I just am spiritual enough, or if I just have X amount of faith, that God will smile on it and everything will be great. But God says, look, there are ways that I desire for you to follow me. Very particular ways, also following wisdom. For us, uh, just individually, when you think of your own life, just a couple of ideas that, to help you along the way. First, commit, to, commit yourself to knowing what God has said. 
If I really want to be obedient to God on his terms, I need to commit myself to understanding what he has said. I need to be reading this book. This needs to be part of my life. I need to devour it. Understand what he has said. Secondly, then I need to submit everything in my life to what he has said. He says a lot in here about raising kids, about handling money, about being the people of God, about worship, about right order as the body of Christ. We tend to say, well, I'm going to trust God for my salvation, but I'm not going to trust him for these other areas of my life. I'm not going to trust him with my finances. I'm not going to trust him with my relationships. I'm not going to trust him with my health. Because I think I know how to do those things. Think about it uh, with, with our kids all the time. It's tempting to say, what, do, what is pragmatic? What seems to work in helping my kids function as, as productive citizens in society? And I want them to be productive citizens of society, but should that be my primary goal as a parent? I think no. The scriptures tell me that my primary goal should be to help them know the Lord. And if I focus only on how to help them become productive members of society, I won't be teaching them the gospel. I'll be doing something that looks good, but I won't be actually obeying the Lord on his terms. He says, yes, have your children become productive members of society. Teach them wisdom. But the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That's foundational. I want to be clear that We aren't under the law. We aren't standing under the old covenant. We stand under the new covenant. We don't have a list of ways to kind of deal with the ark. The ark doesn't exist anymore. We're under the new covenant. We're given a law of love though. Which in many ways is even far broader and far more reaching than we could ever imagine. So if I'm asking, how does God want me to function in this circumstance? What does it look like to obey him? I have to ask myself, what does it look like to love well? Loving the Lord, loving my neighbor. Those are key questions that we have to ask now. So true seeking must happen on God's terms. Now, this little section ends with David kind of passing off the ark. And it seems like, wow, this this may have ended in failure. But thankfully it doesn't. Because God blesses David anyways. I did say earlier that, well, it's not the thought that counts. And that is true. It's not the thought that counts. But at the same time, God honors and desires for his children to move towards him. In the next chapter, we're not going to look at it because in, uh, we, Matt actually covered it last week because it comes earlier in 2 Samuel than it does in 1 Chronicles. But it's the portion where God gives David uh, a bunch of children. He establishes him in Jerusalem. He defeats the Philistines. Kind of goes through some of his accomplishments in that chapter. And it's all to show that God is blessing David. The chronicler puts it here to say that, God, that David's desire to bring the ark into Jerusalem was a good one. And that God is blessing him because of it. And that if I'm truly seeking God, yes, I may stumble in the beginning, but over time, I seek correction, and then I'm able to do it rightly. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. I'm going to pick up the story in chapter 15. David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God. For the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. 
And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. And David gathered together the sons of Aaron and the Levites. And then we get this big list of all the Levites and sons of Aaron that he gathered and kind of their numbers. We're going to skip that and pick up in verse 12. And David said to them, you are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time. The Lord, our God, broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. Again, that idea, seek him. According to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles, as Moses had commanded, according to the word of the Lord. David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals, to raise sounds of joy. Then he goes into another list, kind of describing who's doing what in all of that singing. Picking up in verse 25, So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as also were all the Levites who were carrying the ark and the singers, and Chenaniah, the leader of the music of the singers. And David wore a linen ephod, So all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpets, and cymbals, and made loud music on harps and lyres. And as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came to the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the and saw King David dancing and celebrating, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and distributed to all Israel, both men and women, to each a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and second to him were Zechariah, Jael, and Shemiramoth, Jehiel, Mattathiah, Eliab, Benaiah, Obed-Edom, and Jehiel, who were to play harps and lyres. Asaph was to sound the cymbals, and Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests, were to blow trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. But we just went through a huge, huge chunk. But all of it is to say this, the true seeking ultimately results in right action. True seeking ultimately results in right action. The author of Chronicles goes to great lengths to show us the involvement of the Levites. And we read that and we're like, that is incredibly boring. I would much rather read the story of David dancing around half naked. It's way shorter. It's a lot more fun. But this for us, especially in this day and age, calls to us to say, will we be to what God has called us to do. True seeking ultimately results in right action. And there's two parts to this right action, kind of two steps, if you will. The first one is this. It comes with a willingness to be corrected. 
a willingness to be corrected. David understood what went wrong. He says it twice. He's like, oh, the Levites. Oh, they didn't carry it. That was our problem. We should have done that in the first place. He understands what went wrong, and he has a heart that says, yeah, I did it wrong, but I'm going to do it right. The Lord broke out against us, but now, now, there's going to be greater joy and greater celebration. I have a negative example of this, of somebody learning the right thing to do and then doing the wrong thing. You might be familiar with this. From 2009 to 2015, Volkswagen was making some, uh, some diesel engines, some, some diesel cars, that were unable to pass U.S. emission standards. Instead of designing a better car, they instead designed a software program that they then installed in these cars, that the car, whenever it was in a lab being tested for emissions, would start operating a little bit differently and wouldn't kind of put out as much nitrous oxide. And so then it would pass the emissions tests. So instead of fixing the problem, they just kind of go around it. And they're like, oh, nobody's really going to pay attention to whether our car, you know, is actually worth driving when it's in a lab. So all we have to know is if they're testing it, and we can just cheat. They're like, it's not the real world, so it doesn't matter. Well, they're also paying, I think, about $33 billion worth of fines right now to the U.S. government. But they became aware of a problem, and they didn't act rightly. And the same can be true for us. We discover something in our lives. We see something in God's word. We hear something from God's people around us. And instead of our lives being impacted and affected, we're like, eh, yeah, how can I do that? How can I do what I want to do? True seeking leads to right action. Are we willing to hear God's correction? The second thing is second action or second comes action that shows what God is like. Shows what God is like. I was talking earlier about how the Levites carrying the ark on poles showed God's holiness. So here we have again this picture of God's holiness. But not only that, they're making sounds of joy. They're all a part of the celebration. And it's showing that yes, God is indeed holy and righteous. But at the same time, he is a covenant God who loves his people and is worth worshiping. So it's a picture of what God is like. And that's why these things are so important. They're not just here to bore us and be like, well, okay, you know, this is not the funnest, most, most awesome story I've ever read. No, they're here showing us who God is and what he is like. There was music in the first episode when Uzzah got struck down. There was enthusiasm. There were sacrifices. But now we have the Levites ministering the way they ought. And this is particularly important to us because of Jesus. It's easy for us to see the Levites and think, that's irrelevant. That's all old. It's all gone. But all of this, what the Levites were doing, are pointing to Jesus. They're a go-between between God's people, the people of the world, and God himself. They're serving as priests. They're serving in that capacity of saying, come to us and we will go to God. For them to not be there means that no intercession between us and God is being made. But when they are there, it's saying there is a way to God and they're pointing to what Jesus was ultimately going to come and do. And so when we read this, our eyes are drawn to Christ 
And we celebrate who he is and what he has done. Because we as sinners, I mentioned earlier, that we as sinners, we are guilty before a holy and awesome and mighty God of rebellion against him and his glory and his love. But he says, no, I'm going to make a way for you to be with me. And he sends Christ to die for our sins on the cross. And he says, will you believe that Jesus' death is enough? That it is enough to pay for what you have done? If we lose sight of the importance of the Levites carrying the ark and being a part of the ark coming into Jerusalem, we lose sight of that beautiful truth of Jesus interceding on our behalf. Because we need intercession. Because God is mighty and holy and majestic. There's one minor note that I want to highlight here in this section, and it's, it's this. That David serves as an example or a picture of true seeking. That's kind of obvious through what we've been reading. But there's a few kind of phrases I want to point out. First, we see this contrast with Michael. It says that she despised David in her heart. And the author goes out of the way to, uh, goes out of his way to make sure we understand that she is Saul's daughter. And we see Saul is cut off. Later on, in the next chapter that Matt's going to cover next week, David's house is established. He will have a lineage that results in Christ. His house will never be cut off. So David has a posture of seeking the Lord. And what happens as he's seeking the Lord, he's, he blesses the people. As we seek the Lord, having this posture of, I want to know him, the people around us are blessed. There's this picture. He says uh, they get a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, the cake of raisins. All of this points us again to God's provision of his people for manna in the wilderness. As we rightly follow and seek the Lord, he uses us to help others see what he's like, to help others be blessed, to help others connect with him. And David here is a beautiful picture of that. All right, we have... One last thing to cover this morning, and it's going to be a beautiful picture of who God is. My last point is that we can truly seek God because of who He is. If you feel burdened from what we've been going on or for what we've been going over so far, this continual picture of seek the Lord, seek the Lord, seek the Lord. There is hope and there is beauty in this passage because we see what God is like specifically, what His heart is like here in the next few verses. We can truly seek God because of who he is. It's not a burden. It's not a burden. Now, what we're about to read is a lengthy song or psalm. It's a, it's a, a kind of a, a pieced together of three different psalms. It's Psalm 105, 96, and 106. Uh, the author of Chronicles kind of combines them all and uh, adapts them in a little bit of uh, particular ways. We don't have time to unpack everything in this psalm, but as we're going through it, I'm just going to read it straight through. I want you to be listening to see what God is like and what he has done. Keep your ears open for those things. What he's like, what he's done. Okay? Let's read together. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. 
Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute. To Israel as an everlasting covenant. Saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When you were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar. And all that fills it, let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Say also, save us, O God of our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praise to the Lord. So David left Asaph and his brothers there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister regularly before the Ark as each day required. This psalm is absolutely beautiful. We could spend months, years, picking it apart, going over the different doctrines that we're introduced to, the different attributes of God, the significance of his glory. But we'll just say this. The God has done incredible things. He's been faithful to the covenant that he made. He rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. He's faithful to us, rescuing us out of slavery to sin. He gave them a land where they were safe. He punished their oppressors. And all of that is an act of mercy and grace. But he's also the powerful creator. He's unlike the idols of the other nations. They're worthless. They can't speak. But God, through his speech, spoke everything into existence. What amazing power. Splendor. Majesty. He's the sovereign Lord who reigns. He is in complete control. That's why the ark needed to be treated with care. But at the same time, it's why we get to come to him knowing that he is able to handle everything we bring. Absolutely everything. 
And it's all for his glory. If you look at the request that they have in verse 35, it says, Save us, O God of our salvation. Gather and deliver us from among the nations. Why? That we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. They're saying, we want it to point others to you. We want it to be about you. That's why. It's what this is all about. And that's why it's not a burden for us to seek the Lord. When we see things in the scripture that we see and we're like, ah, you know, that sounds a little cumbersome. I don't really want to get these poles for this ark and kind of carry it around. I want to go find a bunch of Levites to do this. Lord, do we really have to do that? Do I really have to follow you in everything? God is saying to us, no, it is a joy because it helps the world see what I am like. He calls us to be a part of that beautiful ministry. He is worth seeking. For us to not do that is quite silly. I think of my kids, they're always playing in the room, kind of creating things, and uh, my uh, middle child, Eden, uh, created an office in her bedroom. Because I have a home office, that's where I do a lot of my work, and so she sees me in there, and she's like, oh, well, people need offices. So she's created an office in her room, which I'm like, what in the world do you need an office for? You are six years old. You should be thankful you don't need an office. I don't enjoy going into my office. And it gets me thinking, like, well, what if she was trying to build a garden in her bedroom? Like, well, you know, that's not really the purpose of her bedroom, nor is that really how I want or what I want inside my house. But if she came to me and said, Daddy, I want to make a garden in the backyard, I'd be far more open to that. Because that's a great place for a garden. And we, in our limited and often foolish thoughts and wisdom, we say to the Lord, Lord, I want a garden in my bedroom. And he's like, no, 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 that's a bad idea. I got a better idea for you. And I've got it right here in my word of what it ought to look like. Let's put a garden in your backyard. Let's put a garden there. His commands are not burdensome. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. All right, to wrap everything up, asking the question of, again, why is this important? We've touched on a lot of these things. Why is it important now, right here, for us as the people of God? This passage is about a call to seek the Lord. The chronicler is wanting these people who have returned from the exile to obey God and to trust in what he has set up. And for us, it's a call as well to seek the Lord. But what's more beautiful for us than what was for them is that we have God's presence among us. They had God's presence in their tabernacle, in the temple, in this box, which is kind of funny when you think about it because God isn't going to fit in a box. But there's this box that symbolizes God's presence. But for us, as God's people, the scriptures tell us that his presence is here with us. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Matt might cover this next week. I have no idea. If you, if you do, Matt, I'm, I'm sorry. My apologies to, to kind of jump the gun on this. But he says this. Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He's talking to Gentiles, us. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
God's Spirit is here with us. He is in our hearts, and when we gather together, the outside world is able to see. We don't have to carry a box around on poles, but we do get to be the people of God, and His presence is here with us. When Christ came, He was Emmanuel, God with us. There's no longer an ark. There's something better. The person of Jesus and the people of God. There was great fanfare when the ark was brought into Jerusalem. Because God was coming and being with his people. How much more fanfare should there be for us? Because God's spirit is here with us right now. And he does not depart from us question, just last question I have for you to ponder over today and as you leave is where are you not seeking God according to his terms? Where are you believing that his terms are burdensome? Burdensome. If there's an area that you're struggling with, you can chat with me, you can chat with Jason or Luke and call up Matt on his vacation. Don't, don't do that. Please feel free to come talk to us or if you want to, to hear more about faith in Christ and what does it look like to submit and yield to him? Please do. Because guys, he is holy and needs to be sought on his terms. That seeking will result in right action that points others to him. And he is absolutely worth seeking. Let me pray. Father, we praise your name. We thank you that you are a God who is worth seeking. That because you are holy, but because you are gracious, because you are present, that we can know you. We thank you that you made a way through Christ for us to connect with you. We thank you that these pictures of the Levites are not just old stuffy things of history, but they are shadows of what Christ did on the cross. Lord, we praise you for that glorious truth that we can read something like this and have it impact our lives. I pray that all of us would take a deep look at our heart and we would ask the question, Lord, where do I need to seek you? Where are we seeking you wrongly? Where are there areas of my life where I am not understanding who you are? Father, will you help us to do that? If there are lies we are believing about who you are, help us to uncover those and to trust in the truth. Father, we worship you and praise your name because you are indeed good. May we be a body that worships you rightly, that understands that you are holy, but at the same time rejoices in your glorious presence. Father, we praise you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name.